0: All right, if you are following along in your Bible, uh, we are finishing up one of our seasons of John. We're going to be in John chapter 7. Uh, give you a chance to to find that. I, f- I feel like I'm yelling, but maybe maybe not. Maybe I, I, just calm down, Jesse. I'm a little excited now. Uh, yesterday, it, it, I don't have uh, stage makeup on right now. I know I look well tanned and I, it's so handsome. It's probably devastating to you. Uh, but yesterday, I was out in the sun a lot. Uh, we, my family and I, we went to this air show in Houston. Uh, which, if you have boys, uh, as I do, I have an 11 year old and 6 year old. Big flying loud machines is just a great way to spend your afternoon. I mean, these things just buzzing by, and like World War II stuff would fly by, and then Korea, and it was great. We 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 had some seats uh, about six feet from the sun, um, and it scorched uh, it scorched me. Uh, I found out yesterday that I have some extra bald spots on the back of my head. I didn't know were there, uh, but the sun found them. And uh, after hours of watching airplanes fly by, I enjoyed it. Uh, but you know, there's only so many times an airplane flies by. It's like, and that one's green, and then that one's blue. You know, it's like okay. That's that's cool, and so I was kind of I was kind of zoning out at one point. Uh, don't don't tell anybody because they they were doing great. It wasn't them; it's was more my ADHD. And uh, as as it was as they were flying by. All of a sudden, one of the planes, it had flown by probably 10 minutes ago, and my son, my 11-year-old, he's like, hey, dad, that, that one, that one helped defend us during uh, Pearl Harbor. I'm like, son, you weren't even alive then. How do you know that? But, you know, he's like an encyclopedia. He reads these things, and he, he knew that that one was from Pearl Harbor. And about 10 minutes later, it flies by again, as the show had carried on. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't expecting this, uh, but they had Department of Defense, uh, bomb squad or something out in the middle of the tarmac and they started setting off these planned explosions. I mean like mushroom clouds of fire, the concussion like moved my what little hair is left. He was like, you could feel it on your shirt and this big plume of fire shot up. And I was like, that is cool. You know, all of a sudden I'm awake again. I'm like, yes, Boom and bombs and like fire. Yeah, that's great. And so I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm, I'm digging it. And then the announcer comes over and is explaining Torah, Torah, Torah. And this is all this, not to give you a World War II history, but, uh, during Pearl Harbor, we had to defend ourselves. And so I'm flashing back and forth between two moments in time. I'm flashing in this moment in 2023. Explosions are cool. Fire is cool. Fake gunfire is cool. And then it's like telling us like we're defending ourselves against the Japanese during World War II. It's like, oh, that's more serious. That's that's uh, these these bombs now are representing something back then. And if he hadn't explained it, I'm just the dad with some guys with me. I'm like, that is really cool. And then I think, you know, that, that had to have been terrifying. You're just minding your own business, right? And. Uh, uh, it's just a day like any other the rest of the world is at war uh, right but Pearl Harbor was the day that we entered World War II and just to have the explosions go off in real time and so in this moment just if you can imagine it with me in this moment I'm flashing back between here we are doing a thing that I don't really I can't connect all of the dots but someone's connecting them for me and it's really cool to see but I don't know what it means and then over here is this guy who really knows what it means. Some of these people they they like had family members who were a part of that, uh, flying in that, and they're really going through what it means and trying to let you know what it is. And uh, I think I think about like the Fourth of July. I, I don't know if you know this, but in in especially in Texas, but in America, like we blow stuff up on the Fourth of July. It's one of the few times of the year that it's legal to go buy little explosives that you can fly in the air or like blow up in your front yard. Imagine. Like trying to explain this to somebody in the future, like, okay, listen, a couple times a year, the whole community goes and buys little bombs, just little ones, okay? And like, we, we set it off in front of the neighbor's house, just like big explosions all the time. And sometimes it shoots in the sky. That, that would be really hard for them to understand. And uh, again, I have boys and so booms and bombs is like really cool. And so even 4th of July, it shoots off. But uh, you know, the 4th of July, the fireworks are supposed to be in remembrance of another war where there was explosions and fear and and death. These, these things that we did. Uh, like the air show tour, 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 or every 4th of July or whatever. I don't, I don't know why we blow stuff up on New Year's Eve. It's just like, it's a new year. Let's you know, blow up the, the front lawn again. Uh, but we blow things up. And um, in the moment, it's fun. It's exciting. You can't connect all the dots. But if someone were to tell you, like, and that was a really terrifying moment or that was, that was the moment that something big happened, it makes it more mm, palpable, Makes it more pressure, more, more important. We're going to look at a, a time in the Gospel of John where Jesus goes to this festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the moment, it's just something that they did every year. Just like you uh, blow up fireworks uh, every 4th of July with or without thinking about it, you, you probably go to a fireworks show. We, my family, we go to the Hal Furniture parking lot because you can see a bunch of, like uh, uh, in the Ritter Lumber parking lot, we can see a bunch of fireworks all around us. Um, But if you don't stop to think about what it means, maybe you miss it. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called, in Hebrew it's called Sukkot. If you want to impress your Hebrew friends, it's called Sukkot. Uh, It happens every year. And it's a festival, uh, a, a, a feast, if you will, uh, that lasts eight days uh, or seven, seven days. It depends on how you count the days because they do sundown to sun down the next day. So it's either seven or eight days of just partying uh, as, as a community. Uh, it would work out this way that um, uh, a tabernacle is like a tent or like a like a building of some kind and every year dads would go and build like little sheds out in the wilderness because their family would just like live in it like the kids would just enjoy camping I'm sure it's like a family tradition they had their fa- favorite spot that they would set up their tabernacle and they would sit and they would enjoy this festival as a community and they were doing this in remembrance of when the Israel- Israelite people were in the wilderness having to follow God and they'd have to set up their tent. And then they would live for a while, and then God's like, hey, we're going over here. And so then they would follow God. And so every year, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, uh, as it's called in the ESV, uh, was this celebration that was to remember what it was like to be in the wilderness, what it was like to be in the desert following God. Uh, When I was a kid, my grandparents had this tradition that they did for a few years at least, uh, where every uh every year they would go on a trip and they would take one grandkid with them. And so it's like you just had to wait your turn. You're just like, which, which trip are we gonna go to? They took some grandkids to Alaska once, that was pretty cool. Uh they took some grandkids to the Grand Canyon. Uh I, uh, as the grandchild, when it was my year, I got to go to Colorado. And to get to Colorado, uh road trip, uh, you have to go through some desert stuff. Now, I I've never at the time had never been in the desert and we get out in the desert, super dry. And, uh, my grandfather, he says to me, he says, uh, he says, you know, i hey, be careful. There's like a lot of stuff out there that'll hurt you. It's like, Oh, sure. Sure. papa Yeah. You know, I'm like a kid, like what's going to hurt me out here. I'm, I'm 11 years old. I can take care of myself, you know, a coyote. I can do-. And I, I had this distinct memory of seeing like a cactus over here and like a sharp, tumbleweed thing over here and just dirt right here in front of me. And I, I put my hand down in the dirt and like three stickers, three, uh, I don't know, like cactus uh, pins, barbs, whatever, like stick in my hand. I didn't even see it there because I don't know if you know this, everything in the desert's trying to kill you. It just doesn't like you. It doesn't want you there. Everything is out to get you. In the Feast of Booths, is meant to remind the Israelites, like, sure, you live in cities now, but there was a time in your people's history where everything was out to get you. It wants to hurt you. The world is unfair and unkind and it hurts. And I just want to read a little bit about the Feast of Booths in chapter 7 um, and just talk to you if you feel like, you know what, I, I can't, if I had to be honest with you, Jesse, I kind of feel like I'm in a desert. I kind of feel like I'm in some wilderness. I kind of feel like everything's out to get me. Uh, I wish I wish I knew what to do. Uh, let's, let's begin reading in chapter 7. Uh, I'll explain a few things as we go. Uh, it's a goal today to get through the entire chapter uh, to the end because Jim took my sermon last week and, you know, I got to catch up. Uh, you'll be okay. We'll get out by lunch. Uh, verse one, uh, after this, uh, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now I said at the beginning, uh, we are finishing one of our seasons in John. So you, you may know this, uh, if you've been around Carpenter's Way for a while, we began the year saying, Hey, we're going to work our way through John in sections. Um, and we began this, this season, if you will, back at the end of chapter five, where Jesus was in Jerusalem. He healed a man on the Sabbath and everybody came against him. Like, how dare you, sir? Uh, how dare you do this? Who gives you the right to do this? He's like, well, my dad gives me the right to do it. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean by dad? He's like, well, you know, the Father, and then they just got really ticked off about it. Uh, and uh it says, you know, at the end of chapter five that they were ready to kill him in Jerusalem. Like the plot to kill Jesus is basically because he claimed to be from God, that he had the authority from God. In the next several chapters, all of our messages this season, if you will, has been Jesus proving his credentials, proving his authority, that he is from the Father. He feeds five thousand people and he says, You know, he fed people with bread in the wilderness. I'm from the Father. He, uh, he claims that he has the authority to heal a man on the Sabbath because he's from the Father. And so we get here. And Jesus is now back in Galilee. And it says in verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, this feast that I just described to you. This feast is six months after Passover. Um, Passover, uh, by our calendar, happens around Easter time. Uh, in fact, Easter, our Easter moves around in the year based on when Passover actually lands. Uh, so we're like, as a Christian faith. We're really tied to Passover pretty tight. And so six months after that, Uh, roughly, is this Feast of Booths, the seven or eight day festival. And it always lands at the end of September or the beginning of October. And I I don't know if you're paying attention to your calendar right now as we speak, but that is like now, isn't it? In fact, uh, Sukkot, as the Hebrews would call it, was, um, let's see, did I write it down? Uh, September 29th to October 6th. It was just like two weeks ago, uh, they finished this. In fact, uh, the day after the Feast of Booths this year is when Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th. So imagine, I don't know how they celebrate it today, but imagine they're just doing their normal festival. The world is hard. And I'm in the desert. Everybody's out to get us. Remember how the Lord provided for us. And then they finish their seven or eight day festival. To be invaded by someone in the wilderness trying to hurt them. It's, it's, they're living it out today. And so this feast is happening. Verse, uh, uh, wherever I left off, verse three. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. You know, we don't talk a lot about Jesus' family that he grew up in, but he had, he had a mom, he had an earthly dad, Joseph, and he had brothers and and sisters, scripture says, and we see every now and then these little glimpses of his family that they just didn't believe in who Jesus was. He's he's the guy who has immense crowds following him but the people who were closest to him the people who knew him they they have not at this moment come to the place where they believe that Jesus is the chosen one of God. You uh right now as a as a Christian you may have family in mind that you're just like I just wish they would believe. I don't know why they don't. Uh, my heart breaks for them. Uh I think Jesus knows a little bit about what that feels like. His brothers are like, look, I know they're trying to kill you in Judea, but what are you going to do, man? If you can do all the things you claim to do, just go over there. It's what you should do. It's the best PR move ever. But Scripture says that his brothers, they don't believe in him. You know, that won't always be the case. Uh, Not to fast forward to the end of the Bible, um, but his brothers, after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, after his resurrection, they come to the position— that they believe their oldest brother Jesus is the chosen one of God sent by God. In fact, two of his brothers have books of the Bible that they wrote after this moment. So James, at the end of the New Testament, and the book of Jude, that's Jesus' brother, are written by people that in chapter 7 of John do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but later they come to the conclusion that he is. I wonder what it takes for a little brother to move from, you're not as good as you think you are, to, I think you're God of the universe, I'm going to put my faith in you and die on your behalf. It seems like that's a big stretch. If you have uh, an older sibling, maybe you can uh, agree that that's, that's a big stretch. Nobody? Okay, you guys, you're like, no, I am the older sibling and they will do what I say. Uh, Jesus' siblings didn't believe in him. And so what we see is they're telling Jesus, hey, show up. And Jesus says to them, you know what, I'm going to hang back. You guys go ahead and go to Jerusalem. Uh, And then we see that Jesus, he goes there in secret later. He shows up kind of in a a, uh, moment of um, uh, seclusion. It says in verse 10, Uh, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, so his family's already left, all the people who are going to go, they've already gone. Uh, Then he, Jesus, also went, but not publicly, but in private. He's not really wanting to make a big show of it yet. Uh, He's in control of uh, how much of an announcement he gets. Verse 11, the Jews uh, were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You know, Jesus, uh, as as he goes to this feast, everybody on the outside says, you know what you should do? You should show up at like a big parade, you should make a big deal about it, but Jesus has other plans because as the Lord, he does things on his time, his way, uh, and apparently his way was not to make a big deal, is to go in quiet. But as he gets there in quiet, when they can't find him, people are, Scripture says, uh, muttering about him. If you're interested in a little bit of uh, Greek, uh, that word in Greek, muttering, is the same word for grumbling in chapter 6, verse 41. The people were grumbling about him. So even when Jesus isn't around, or they don't think that he is, people are they're whispering about him. They're wondering, like, who is this Jesus? What's he, what's he about? What's, what's he like? They think that he's stayed behind, and people still wonder. Today, where you live right now, there are people all around you that are drawing opinions based on Jesus. There is just nobody I can think of in any demographic in the world that doesn't have an opinion about Jesus and want to talk about Jesus. Christians want to talk about Jesus. Muslims want to talk about Jesus. Atheists, your friend at work, your boss who used to go to church and doesn't like church anymore, doesn't want to talk about church or faith or the Bible, thinks things about Jesus and has opinions about Jesus. It's just, even today, people we know all around us, they're muttering things about Jesus. They're, they're questioning, like, who, what's he about? What is he like? And notice the, the two things, the two conclusions that people are having. When Jesus isn't around, he's not like on a stage in front of them. They're just, they're just talking about him. Some say he's really good, and others are saying he's kind of dangerous, some say that Jesus is somebody that you should pay attention to, and some are saying he's somebody you should watch out for. He's he's leading people astray. I think people are still drawing today the same opinions as they were in Jesus' time. I think today people are wanting to figure out, like, is this Jesus? Is he as good as they say that he is? Or is he just one of those risky belief structures that are kind of leading people into false thinking? And then you get into all this weird, weird stuff, and I, I just— I think, I think that we would be wise to enter the conversation a little bit more. I think that we would be wise to have our ears up and be like, you know what? I hear, I hear some people mumbling some things about Jesus. Maybe, maybe I should share with you my experience of it. Okay. So I need to fast forward a lot, uh, because, because I don't want to do two whole sermons today. Uh, again, this feast is seven and or eight days long. It's a long feast. And for the first half of it, Jesus is just hidden. He's he's hiding from the people. He's not making a big public show, but the Jewish leaders, they're looking for him. People are muttering about him. Some people are like, he's good. Some people are, he's dangerous. And so the Jewish leaders send some officers, some some court, um, uh, temple officers to go arrest him. Like, hey, if Jesus shows up, now's the time to arrest him. Why do they want to arrest him? Because six months ago, last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and he claimed to be sent from God, and it really made them mad. They really wanted to kill him then. And so they're like, if he shows up at this feast, we're going to arrest him. So they send the officers. If if you're also interested in the timeline of things, um, this is about six months before Jesus' last Passover, because the year is 12 months, so six months since the previous Passover. His last Passover is the one that he gets arrested at. He's six months away from the cross at this moment. He's six months away from telling his friends, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's, his, his time is drawing near. And so for the first half of the feast, uh, he he sits in, in private. In verse 14, we won't read it, but in the middle of the feast, so we're looking at day three, day four of the feast, Jesus goes to the temple and he just proclaims boldly who he is. And they, out of fear, will not arrest Jesus in public. They don't want to, but they start questioning him. Like, who do you think you are? Where are you from? Where did you get your credentials? Who taught you? Where'd you go to school? And Jesus' response is over and over, I went to school in heaven. Uh, I'm sitting here by my father and I have proven to you by my actions that I have done all of these things. And if you don't believe me, you should, you know, arrest me perhaps. And they don't out of fear, but let's, let's move to the last day of the festival. I want to look at verse 37. Here's, here's what would happen in, in the festival. Just like we have our 4th of July and we have our fireworks and sometimes we remember what it means and sometimes we don't, they had their rituals And the seven-day festival would begin on a Sabbath, a big celebration. And then following this big celebration, the whole community living in their little tents in the in the wilderness, uh, every day after that, they would kind of go about their lives. And every day at, towards the end of the day, there would be this parade, this procession where they would go down to a well, uh, the, the pool of Siloam, I think it was. They would scoop out some water and they would take it back to the temple. Water in a desert, it's kind of life-giving. And they would go up to the temple and they would pour the water in a public way. This whole procession, they're singing psalms, uh, songs out of psalms Uh, They're reviewing scripture out of Isaiah. They're remembering what it was like to be in the wilderness, to be so thirsty that that Moses would hit a rock and water would come out of it. They would remember these moments over and over again. And so for seven days in a row, the day would end with the entire family singing these songs about God's faithfulness in the wilderness, bringing water up there, and then the pouring of the water every day, bringing water, the pouring of the water. On the last and final day, the great day of the feast, they wouldn't do it one time. They would do it seven times. They would go to the pool, pull the water, sing the songs going up, and they would pour it out. And it's in that moment that Jesus gets really public. Here's here's what happens. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Imagine you're at the, I don't know, what tradition should I use? You're at the baseball game and it's in the Pledge of Allegiance. You know that moment where everybody knows, you just be quiet. Like even little babies, they stop crying in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's like, oh, okay, put their bottle on their heart. It's that moment where nobody says anything. That's the moment Jesus decides, I've got something to say. Thank you for gathering here. I would like to tell you a little bit about my ministry and who I am. It is a big, bold moment. So if if his brothers are like, look, Jesus, you're not going to Judea because you're scared. You're scared they're going to get you. He's already taught publicly in the temple, but you could argue like people are just going about their day. It was in the middle of the week. This is the great day of the feast. The, The entire town would have shown up for this. In this moment, Jesus decides to say, this is who I am and what I'm about. He says this, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts as they're pouring this water, If anyone thirsts, as they're remembering God providing for them in the wilderness when there's not a drop to drink, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says to them, this ritual you're doing, this water, trying to remember what God has provided for and hoping that God will one day pour out a river of water from this temple to heal our land and to heal the hearts of people, that thing you're hoping God will do, it's going to happen through me, Jesus says, through Jesus. Some people say he's good and some people say he's dangerous and he says, and he stands up, if you're thirsty, come to me. I will give you water. You know what we need? Um, All that muttering. People want to figure out who Jesus is. Your family members want to figure out who Jesus is. They need some people who are really satisfied by Jesus to just be satisfied. To have a history of running to Jesus and being satisfied. I thirst. This world is hurting. It's broken. I wish the Lord would provide like he did back then. I wish the Lord would do a thing. And Jesus says, if you come to me, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of out of his heart, out of the Lord's heart, will flow rivers of living water. Who do you say that Jesus is? Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you've come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. He is not only good, but he is the Christ. Jesus stood up in this moment and says, I'm the one that you are all thirsty for. I'm the one that you're all craving. I'm the one that this moment you're trying to remember was meant to point you to. It was about Jesus. Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, believes that he himself is the main point of the entire Bible. He's the main point of Moses. He's the main point of Moses hitting the rock. He's the main point of what Isaiah was prophesying would happen eventually. Jesus believes that Jesus is the one who is to come and to satisfy. This is a big moment. There's a crowd of people there. Uh, There are officers ready to arrest Jesus right then. The plot to kill Jesus, they want it to happen right then. The officers know exactly where Jesus is in this moment. The entire town knows, hey, they're all looking for Jesus. He's right there. Somebody going to get him. And they just see his words. And they consider what he's done. And they're frozen. Because it turns out that when people get a really good look at Jesus, they can't help but think, I think he is. I think he really is this God. So here are the responses from all the people, this entire crowd who's all been like choosing sides. Verse 39, now this he said about the spirit. Oh, I need to explain what he meant about rivers flowing from his heart. He said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus has, has was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit will come uh, later in the book of Acts with, with Pentecost. You and I, we live in a world where you have the Spirit of God living in you. This moment right here, there it's, it's a different way of experiencing God. So here's how the people responded, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Just a, just earlier in that same week, the same crowd was like, you know what? I think he's good. This this group of Jesus, something about him. He's really really good. This other group is like, no, he's dangerous. You need to watch out for what he says. And then when Jesus has this moment, the same groups they 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 go in more extreme of the same direction. I think he's the prophet. I think he's the Christ, some say. Some say he can't be the Christ. He's from the wrong place. I don't believe in verse 43, there was division among the people over him. When we come to the place where we're really serious about Jesus We're wanting to to live a life where we're faithful to him and we're doing things that resemble our obedience to Jesus. When we call him Lord, we're saying, whatever you say to do, Lord, I'm going to do. I'm going to obey you. Uh, When we come to that place, it does this thing to other people around us. It causes division. People will draw their lines. Some, though, will move towards him and some will move away from him. But it is impossible to hear the claims of Jesus and stay put. You are forced to to move away from him or towards him. Verse 43, or excuse me, 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. They just couldn't bring themselves to do it. The the muscle of the temple could not bring themselves to lay hands on Jesus. Why? Because they accidentally heard what he was saying. They paid attention to him. No one has ever talked the way that this man did. Imagine, by the way, you're the the muscle of the temple. You're around religious people all day, every day. Religious people who like, they can tell you good and wrong and bad and rules and they can follow the rules and they have the power. They put on the clothes and they look really, really good. And they say something like, no one has ever taught like Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to look like religious people. He wants us to look like him. He wants us to live and act in a way that is gracious, but points to his glory and points people towards hope because people are not satisfied by more rules over their lives. People are not more satisfied when you wag your finger at them and say, you know what, you're kind of sinning right now. You should stop sinning. You know what people are satisfied by? Getting to the water of life, getting to Christ. Verse 45, the officers, they came to the chief priests, the ones who sent them, to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? He was right there, guys. Why didn't you get him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Not even you guys, you know. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Uh, but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. The, the the Pharisees, they're kind of showing their cards a little bit. They say, you know what? None of us believe him. You shouldn't believe him. The people in authority don't believe him, so you can't trust them. In uh, In philosophy, that's called a logical fallacy. It's an appeal to authority. Who cares what the authority says? Is it true? Is Jesus right? Uh, and then they, they look at the crowd and they're like, you know what? These crowds, they're idiots. They don't know the law as good as we do. You can't trust them. But the the prison guard, not the prison guards, the, um, the temple guards, they're hearing Jesus's words by his mouth. Nicodemus, a guy that we met in chapter three, you know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in that moment. He's a Pharisee, but he's one of the only Pharisees who come and listen to Jesus face to face. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus says to him, hey guys, hold on just a second. Have any of y'all ever actually gone and listened to Jesus? Have you ever, like, are you just drawing your conclusions based on what you think people are saying about him? Or are you going to him and listening to him? Of course, they they dismiss him. Uh, They replied, are you from Galilee too? So they make fun of him. uh, Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus has this really great instruction. Um, If you're drawing your conclusions on Jesus, maybe you should get really close to him and listen to what he's like. Here's what the people did. When they got close to Jesus and they heard him, they were compelled. Those who were sent to arrest him, they were dumbfounded. No one's ever talked like that. Those who were drawing lines in the sand came to the conclusion that he is the Christ. One of our goals this year as a church is that if anybody wants to get closer to God, we want to be the church that helps them do that. And we believe in order to do that, you have to get close to who Jesus is. I would invite you, if you're on the fence to get close to the teachings of Jesus. I, I don't want you to tell me what, what Christians are like or what churches are like. What was Jesus like? And what is your conclusion about who he is? We must draw our own conclusions like those temple guards did. You know, Gandhi has this favorite uh, famous quote. Uh, he says, I, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And he's known for not being a Christian. I, I, I'm not actually sure what he was, maybe Hindu. That would make sense to me. Uh, but I, I don't know what he was. That's that's an invalid argument. Okay, some Christians are knuckleheads. But my Christ, this Christ, he's the only one who satisfies. Where else are we going to go? If you're a part of this crowd, and you're coming to conclusions about who Jesus is, you're coming face-to-face with his teachings, and you're you're just repelled by them, you're just like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm part of that other side of the crowd, the, the side where I think, I think religious thoughts are dangerous. Um, I just, I just, one, I, I want to thank you for your honesty. I want to thank you for giving it a good look. And if you have questions, I want to have conversations. Um, I want us as a church to be the place where conversations can happen. It's not just a dismissal of people who disagree with us. But if you're on the other side of that and you've just like, I've been in the middle lane a little bit and I'm starting to move, like I just, I'm really convinced he is the Christ. He he he's the only one who can satisfy. His teachings they line up with me. It resonates with everything. I feel like I'm in the wilderness, and I feel like everything in this world is out to get me and out to hurt me. And I feel like this world is kind of devastating, Jesse. And it's just like everything's out to get you. He is the one who is the, the the living water. He's the one who you run to when you're thirsty. He is the one who satisfies. Can I give you a tip on what you do if you are being compelled that he is the Christ? You become obedient to what he says. You become obedient to confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You become obedient to align your life and your actions to reflect what he said that your life and actions should be. You become obedient to live in this world as if you're in an embassy, as if you're in foreign territory, as if you are in wilderness, but not as one who is thirsty and dehydrated, but as one who is satisfied by the one who gives life. You live this day, this world, as one who has found the Christ, so that others can see him, and others will know. And uh, this this is occurring uh, about six months before his crucifixion. If we assume his crucifixion is in AD 33, which is a pretty good guess, um, 60 years later, a man named Josephus is writing a history book. Josephus is not a Christian. Uh, he's, he's, he wrote a ton. He was kind of a, uh, uh, a Roman apologist. He was a Jewish guy who uh, was like really soft on the Romans, but he definitely wasn't a Christian. He has no ax to grind when it comes to Christianity. He doesn't care if you believe in Jesus or not, if I had to be honest with you, but he lived about 60 years after Jesus and he wrote about the histories of Israel. And when he gets to this period that happened 60 years before him, and he's talking about Christianity, this is what he says this is in one of his books of antiquities. I think it's book eight, but I don't remember. It says, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, I think it's funny that he calls them a tribe. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Sixty years after Jesus's crucifixion, 60 years after people are drawing their lines in the sand, 60 years after the first people decided he's the Christ and he's worth following, a man who is not a Christian is thinking back about who Jesus was and says, I don't know. I'm Jewish. He might've been the Messiah. Could have been, could could be. Um, He was a virtuous man. He was a good, good man. Who do you say that Jesus is and how can you align your life with that? If you find that Jesus is the Christ, I would invite you to, one, go to him and be satisfied. He's living water. Two, to confess Jesus as Lord if you've never done that. To pray now, even before we leave. In a moment when I pray, that you would just close your eyes and you would pray. If you're listening online in the future, as the internet tends to do, that you would just like ask the question, is he Lord? And have I said yes? If the answer is yes, that he's Lord, and no, I've confessed, then what's stopping you today? What keeps you today from confessing him as Lord? And if you've already confessed him as Lord, what stops you today from living in this wilderness, in this desert, with all of its thorns, with all of its hate, with all of the things that are trying to kill, what's stopping you from living today is if you're actually satisfied by the living water, that you remember the Christ who has come, who has shown the way and shown us what the Father was like so that you and I can get closer to God and live a life in alignment with him. Let me pray. I invite you to pray with me. Father, you are, you are so kind and gracious. We, we living in the wilderness, uh, we've done nothing to deserve salvation or rescue. Um, and yet your word teaches that because you've loved us so, that you step down into our wilderness. Uh, that Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, that he tabernacled among us in our own brokenness and showed us the way. I pray, Father, that uh, for those of us who have just been longtime followers of you, that we would be refreshed and renewed, um, that we would remember that we're to live satisfied. And in those areas of our heart where we're not, we would just run to that living water and be satisfied. I pray for those of us who are becoming more and more compelled and convinced that Jesus is the Christ, Lord, that you would, you would create in us obedience and faithfulness to that truth. Um, and that our lives would align with that and that you would give us strength uh, to to repent of our sins and any wickedness we have um, and to confess Jesus as Lord and to live as a rescued people. I pray, Lord, for those who are still on the fence, that you would continue to to pursue, to convince, to show your goodness, and that through through glimpses of Jesus, um, we would find hope we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.